Before we start this episode, I want to give a big shout out to Zipster, local web people who help entrepreneurs and artists make kick-ass websites and get found online. Visit Zipster.com to find out more information. And on to the episode. This is Diamond McGlone and you're listening to Free Pizza Podcast. Free Pizza, your platform for creatives, and today we have a, a very, 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 very special guest with us. We have Franck Stissus. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I try. I'm trying my best to say it the, the, the Haitian, uh, the Haitian way, and um, I'm very lucky to have you here. You are an amazing, amazing artist. We just we printmaker, mixed media, and painter. Correct, um, and it is to me, it's all one of the same because. Um, you go with your creative impulse and your creative impulse kind of tell you where to go and you Ooh. just kind of, you know, obey and, and just do it. Absolutely. I love that. And you've been in the game for 20 years, 20 plus years, 20 plus. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Going from France, <laughs> you're in so many solo shows, exhibitions, you've done so much going through your CV. I was almost kind of blown away. So oh, we're going <laughs> to. We're gonna try. You know, I've, been, I've been lucky. I've had uh, some of my highlights are the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Mokada mm. um, Museum in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Museum did a survey on Brooklyn artists called Open House. I was very fortunate to be part of that. Um, I had a few shows in LA, um, Atlanta, Chicago, DC. Mm. Most recently, Miami, there's a gallery down there called Nappy Contemporary. It started representing me at a one-man show there last September. Um, so, I mean, to make, I can go on and on and on. Those are just some of the highlights uh, in terms of um, sh- very significant shows based on the amount of work and, and what they signify in terms of uh, acknowledgement for the commitment and and that's you know we're always looking for some form of validation yes and to me to me those are the validations when your contemporaries and your peers can invite you in and allow you to you know develop your platform i think that's when you kind of know you're on the right path absolutely and definitely all of that is a testament and validating validating to you as an artist because you've been able to travel all over the country like that you know, is is a big deal. So I'm I'm very happy that you're here with me. This means a lot to me. Um, but let's start back in Haiti because that's where you were born. Correct. So let's start back to life in Haiti, and then you coming to the United States, and we'll go from there. Well, life in Haiti is is you know I left pretty young. I was nine years old. Um, funny story. Um, we came for summer vacation. Wow. Yeah, July seventy five. <laughs> 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 uh, we, we packed light because we were just coming for the summer. Um, I have four siblings, and we came to to reunite with our immediate um, parents because they had left us behind to set roots and get you know situated financially and send money back and forth that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and. At the end of the summer, they were like, uh, as it so happened, I think you guys can actually stay. Oh. And we were like, and we were like oh, really? Because, you know, no one had really that kind of a vision or plan because, again, 
we had like one suitcase between my brothers and I. Wow. So which means came September when school started. The first day of school was very funny. I'm gonna just say it that way because we were not prepared to you know, <laughs> mix, in, you know, to to join the you know, general population, so to say. Yeah. Um, you know, you wearing like, you know, Hawaiian shirts and <laughs> you know hard shoes, and these yeah. kids are wearing Converse and Levi's jeans and Kangol hats, that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, that's how again, that's how far back that was. <clears throat> but for us, it was just like a shock system because we had to learn on the fly, mm-hmm. had to learn English, had to learn English very fast, and had to learn how to kind of navigate very fast. Wow. And long story short, fast forward, you know, in this case, thirty yards plus years, um, the story continues. Exactly, you're still living that story and that journey. Um, and this is you, and this is in New York City, Brooklyn, New York. It's right, in Brooklyn, yeah. and wow, that's such a culture shock for you to come from Haiti to one of the craziest cities in the world. <laughs> I mean, lucky for us, um, our, our parents, where they moved was based on information they had from other relatives and other family members. And so there were a lot of Haitians in the building we lived in. There were a lot of Haitian stores around the corner. Um, so you can record shops and, you know, restaurants and, and, and type of grocery stores that you get where they sell dry goods and all. But you could hear the Creole language and Creole music. And so that part kind of helped ease the shock and, 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 and I guess, traumatic elements of it because you had to kind of really figure it out very fast. And people were not very gracious about people who didn't understand mm-hmm. you know, and who couldn't communicate. So there was no bridge for you. You kind of had to just jump in. Yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting. Wow. So it's good that you saw kind of parts of your culture in the city. Obviously, New York is a place that has a lot of diverse you know, people in it. Were you influenced yeah. by art at a young age while you were in New York? I, I, if anything, it was more comic book characters, uh, yeah. television programs like Star Trek and things like that. Those were immediate to me for whatever reason. Um, it was a very intuitive kind of a thing. Uh, as a, early, early on, I always had a very, you know, solid mechanical ability to handle um, paper and crayon and pencil and all that stuff. Um, I can write fluidly in script, and <clears throat> whereas my older brothers look like they were all left-handed compared to my, you know, vernacular sort of thing. And so I've always had this ability, and and but it wasn't I wasn't perceiving perceiving it as artist. I was just perceiving it as fun, creative, whatever. And so that that chapter didn't happen or and didn't start till way way later on. Mm. The chapter of artists. Wow, and this later on is as close to around college or before? Um, I would say midway into that because prior to that, <clears throat> I try to get, um, you know, my art classes. All all of them went pretty well. I had a uh, easel that was donated to me by one of my um, art school teachers or art class teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, one kind of noticed, oh wow, that's pretty good, and not just the fact that it was pretty good, but they noticed my interest. Yes, uh, 
on my spark because I didn't know I had an interest or a spark. I was just doing something that I enjoyed. And them as the elder and the guider and the teacher, they could see the difference in a classroom of 26 kids who's interested and who's not. Yeah. You know, it was very obvious. And so one of the teachers gave me a watercolor set, watercolor paper, easel, some books. And so it was something that was, I was very fortunate to be kind of like at the right place at the right time. Because as, you know, Haitian folks, you know, that's not their culture in terms of coming here. Mm. To come here, you need to learn a trade. You need to get an education. You need to yep. be able to send money back home. You need to be stable. And that language was foreign to them. And, you know, they didn't discourage it, but they definitely did not encourage it either. Gotcha. So you think at that point, even though your interest was in the arts and teachers were kind of nurturing that, were you still kind of on a trade of like maybe doing something that would just earn you money? Like you weren't thinking about going into art school. <laughs> I was thinking um, architecture, yes. and, then, and then I pivoted over to teaching, so I was thinking towards the teaching route, um, and then I, you know, so I was just figuring it out, and uh, a lot of it was also based on um, my ability to kind of connect to this information. A lot of this information, you know, I was in, in denial, the fact that deep down inside, you know, art was my calling, I just didn't know how to go about it. Absolutely. And what things were you kind of drawn to to create when you had these watercolors and all this? Were you doing more abstract? Were you doing figures? What were you drawing at that young age? I was doing anything I had access to. Comic books. Spider-Man was my favorite. Gotcha. Um, you know, landscapes. Um, you know, anything that was just like, oh, I like that. That looks cool or whatever. And so I would try to copy it and, and make it my own and and you know it was just for fun it really was just for fun and i I think again it wasn't until like maybe second year of college i started taking art classes more seriously um because they demanded more yeah and so regardless of the demand i was able to deliver no problem i was making all the classes getting all a's and it was fun and easy for me whereas everyone else was just kind of like struggling or had no interest um, and so that's kind of when it started to click. Gotcha. And this is at Long Island uh, University? Long Island, Long Island University, the Brooklyn campus, though. Okay, so you were, in, you were still in Brooklyn then. You weren't in Long Island. Okay. I never, yeah, I never left the, the borrowers. Gotcha. And you studied sociology. So right. you were able to do the art just as a, um, I guess, a secondary kind of study? All right, kind of like a minor. Minor, okay, art. yeah. Um, because, you know, again, the passion was by this time very clear. And again, I didn't have a direction. It was just impulse. And then again, very intuitive. I was just drawn to it and drawn to it and drawn to it. And rather than fighting it, I just found a way to, you know, weave it into my, my schedule and kept, kept hammering and hammering and hammering. Absolutely. And sociology and art can go pretty well together, depending on how you do it. So. I think now more so than then, because now I'm able to step out of the equation mm. and really look at it from multiple views, from a social, political aspect. And so all my readings, especially stuff about identity and things yeah. like that, because um, in sociology, you, one of the things you learn about identity is that 
a person would rather a bad identity than no identity at all. Yep. So when you start understanding these constructs and applying it to your work, me in particular, especially the series I was doing prior to my current series, which was Pilgrimage from Scattered Points, it was really about that whole self-discovery and that journey based on this need for this identity, something to connect to, something to belong to, something you call home. And that whole journey to kind of like reconnect after so many years of disbursement, mm. you know. Um, and that was the interesting thing about that series is the fact that, you know, for my whole life, it's something that I took for granted in terms of, because it's not emphasized anywhere in school or anywhere in terms of black history yep. or African-American history and how people would disperse throughout the diaspora in the absence of their lineage, their history, their language, their food. And so we've left to kind of refabricate all these things. Mm. And so that's what that series was really about. It's about people coming together. One of the interesting questions you heard at the turn of the century was when people met for the first time. Yeah. They look at each other and say, oh, wow, you look like a cousin. Or you look like a this. You look like <laughs> yeah. Where are you from? You know, like, where are you from? Where are your people from? Because a big part of us was still searching for these roots and these connections because they were taken away from us. Yeah. Until this day, you know, until this day. Absolutely. It's kind of, it's, it's crazy how it's kind of been, you know, stripped from our teachings and education, you know, coming up. So it's interesting that you kind of mentioned that, you know, in the, in that, in that, in that, in those pieces that you've, you've done. Well, correct. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. Well, that brought back some memories. You saying that actually, I remember, I remember hearing that all throughout my life, you know, where you're from, with your mom, all that is even locally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Wow. And I want everybody to know this is this is in the 90s. So 1992 was when you were. Did you graduate in 1992? Yeah, 92. Yeah. Wow. So as you were weaving in and out of art thing and graduating, what was the next step afterwards? Because eventually, obviously, you went to France to do printmaking. So what was the gap? Oh, well, the again, as as a you know, the timing of things. And in my case, very fortunate to be, you know, at the right place at the right time. Um, I met a gallery person out of like the blues sort of thing. And they were coordinating an exhibition and I was like submitting, you know, slides <laughs> for the exhibition. And next thing I knew, I was in this group exhibition mm. um, while I was still in school. And yeah. then after that, it was a, a, a you know, kind of a Haitian theme and da 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 da, da. And I, I mean, to be honest, my work was very naive at that time. I was just starting off. And I was creating stuff based on Haitian market scenes and Haitian village lifestyle, that kind of stuff. Because that's all I knew. I mean, you know, in terms of Haitian art. And so that's a construct I had to break away from because mm. Haitian art is based on so many other things than just what you would see at a tourist market, you know? 
And so, but for, again, to my own defense, I didn't know very much at the time. And that was the only way I can actually start that whole journey. If it was the only place I knew I could turn to for that information. And so I went to that first and the show was pretty successful for what it was. Um, and then there was a show at LIU. Uh, I managed to, you know, with full confidence, burst in the, the art director's office one day. <laughs> That I'm a student here. I'm from Haiti. I'm an artist. Can you, you know? Can you please look at my stuff? I don't think I even said please. And he's like, sure, he's like, sure, no problem. But just not today. We have to set up a time. Da -da -da -da. Um, I think I, she knew about me because I was taking all these art classes and stuff like that. So I wasn't a full, complete stranger. And so eventually she said, Yeah, sure, why not? Um, I got a small gallery space at the main entrance on Flatbush Avenue. Wow. And there's, there's a little hall gallery space right there. And, uh, you know, I put put my work up and had a little, uh, made some invitations, invited friends and family, faculty. Mm. And um, people turned out and people came and, you know, people were very, like, supportive because it was it was out of the left field, so to say, because you have to understand, you know, like you just said, 92, 90, and even before that, 90, and, and even late 80s, you know, they were like, you're doing what? You, know, <laughs> you, you understand? So this whole, I mean, we just had a show at Heath Gallery, and it was 100 people there for the reception, and it's all normal. But in the time frame I'm talking about, people did, had no idea what you're talking, what I was on about in terms of art reception. Like they were like, "What is that?" Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I'm gonna show the art, and you can have a glass of wine, and and, and you know, I wasn't even thinking selling because I didn't even know I could sell the work. Yeah. And you know, and so, uh, but a lot of support came from faculty and. and you know, some of my teachers and uh, even like the dean of the school, you know, the news traveled, and, you know, people were like, the fact that I was able to pull it all together and and you have to understand the, the exceptionalism of the situations because, you know, we're in the heel of the crack epidemic. Here's a young black male who's actually going to school mm -hmm. and he's staying in school. Yes. <laughs> And he's doing this and he's trying to do that. And so, you know, that in itself was a whole story. And so, but for me, again, it was all based on a series of very fortunate circumstances that just kept guiding me and guiding me and guiding me in the right direction. Wow. I, it's crazy because obviously with galleries now, like, even as able to use social media, use whatever, use technology to spread word about these shows, but you saying that it packed out back in the nineties, I'm like, that's what it's, it was word of mouth. You know, probably maybe there were flyers up and that's just very impressive that you had that big of a turnout even back then. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I'm not gonna blow it out of proportion. It was, you know, it was modest, it was definitely modest, but still it was very, you know, it was quite the accomplishment. Yeah. So how did you feel? You just watch, stepping back and watching people just absorb your work. Like, how did that feel for you at first? Uh, 
uh, I think it's more important now than then because the work is so much more packed right now mm. um, than it was um, in the beginning. You know, it was just I was sort of so new to it. I was a novice. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know, you know, I didn't. I definitely expected a lot of criticism. Oh yeah, because you know, because the work had a lot of growing to do, in more ways than one. And um, so the, the information I was packing into the work wasn't very um, orchestrated the way it is nowadays. Now I'm really, you know, putting my head down and really digging into various themes and, and subject matters and motivation and all other things that ties into the work. Because the layers now are very, very, very um, a big part of the work. Well, back then it was just about trying to create a you know, a decent picture, so to say. Yeah, you was kind of um, putting pen to paper and, and putting it up, and that was way more thought-provoked. Right, right, right. Now I'm really trying to get at certain things. I'm really trying to, you know, see what kind of memories these images jog out of people's heads and, and what kind of visceral response are they getting and, and what is that like for them, as well as am I hitting my mark? Because mm. you do this work for a reason, and you and one of those reasons is to communicate a various thought or point or feeling or emotion or whatever it is. And so, it's curious, you know, I'm curious to find out, you know, at the shows in particular, am I hitting my mark? Are people tuning in or are people tuning out? Mm. And, and what is it that's what is it that I'm missing? And one thing I realized over the years, a thing that I coin as. Uh, standalone painting a painting that could stand in the room by itself with no one there to explain it and yet it has enough information on the surface that everyone can come and really pull their own meaning out of it and i'm and i think that's the piece that i have at the show and that's the reason i have that piece at the show uh, because i have other pieces in that series that's not as easily approached mm. I, I think that piece the way it stands it can stand alone and really deliver its message right right and this that takes a lot to create a piece that can kind of deliver what you need to deliver and that be it so very impressive <laughs> well, yeah you know because me again at this stage of the game I'm, when i work on a piece i'm working on an idea yeah so i'm not working, i'm not working on one painting working on 20 paintings and the all of all 20 are good but all 20 can't stand alone because they approaching different angles of the same subject and so one is approaching it from a close-up one is approaching it from a far away and they all say different things and a, a person walking into a room like that with i think 12 other artists whatever the number was or seven I'm not even sure um they're not going to see your piece in the conversation of a 20-piece series, which can kind of really inform them, develop the idea that I'm trying to approach. So when it's just one piece and there's no readings next to it, there's no artist statement, there's no bio, you have no idea who the artist is. Um, so for me, it was important to put a piece like that in the show because it has to kind of stand by itself and speak for itself. Absolutely, absolutely. And in 97, 94, you also had some commissions. So are you able to talk a little bit about that? Because I guess they went to a college in Academy of Music in Brooklyn. That's a um, BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. 
Yes. Yeah. So you yeah. did. You did piece for the the. Right. I did a piece. I was commissioned to do a piece for their announcement for that year, um, and then the gallery show that came with that package. Um, so that was a big starting point as well because you know i was fresh out <laughs> yeah and to get something like that going you know it's another example of you know being steered in the right direction by a series of very fortunate circumstances absolutely i mean them coming to you you know fresh out of college i'm sure you're like man this is this is wonderful this is crazy <laughs> i'm sure you felt very accomplished <laughs> I know. I was like, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, wow. So obviously, I definitely want to talk about your time in France, printmaking. Right. That was a residency um, that I was awarded um, based on, uh, you know, the work that I was doing at the time. And uh, it was a month-long residency program. It's outside of Paris. You given room and board. And you pretty much was working, you know, nine to five in a print shop, developing your print. And um, it's a technique called uh, G, not G clay. Um, uh, oh man, I'm drawing a blank right now. <clears throat> oh, it's a stone litho technique. Yes. And so lithography is a tradition that goes back, you know, I think a thousand years or whatever. And um, and and to this day, a few people. And, and print shops still do it that old way with the litho uh, limestone slabs. They put the image on that. So it was a whole kind of learning process. And, um, you know, I did a crash course before going, so I didn't get there, you know, wasting time because there's a lot to do in a month. And in terms of, in my case, I was making three different images and additions of 25 of each three image. And so we're looking at 75, well, actually it was, a, actually it was way, it was, in total it was like a hundred and something prints because you had to do artist proofs and then the addition. And so, I mean, we were working like a factory in there, right? Um, so it was a very enriching, immersive process in terms of sight and sound because you know, most of folks there spoke French. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, taking lunch at two, I think, one p.m., two p.m. Um, for like two hours every day. Wow. Two hours. It took lunch for two hours every day. So, <laughs> it was a learning experience. Uh, <laughs> That's unheard of in the United States. <laughs> Like lunch. Once you heard lunch, everyone dropped their aprons, dropped everything, and they went to the big room where. And then there's a local market. You can go buy stuff from local farmers. So there would be prawns and oh. all kinds of seafood and cheese and breads, wine at lunchtime. It was just like you know, it was an experience. And so, um, so for me, it was a very enriching and encouraging and, and immersive process. Um, it really broadened my sense of horizon in terms of the potentiality of art making and the rewards that come from, you know, your labor. And, and this was one of those fruits that I just, you know, uh, to this day, it was probably one of my most enjoyable because it was the first of many. And, um, 
but the most kind of like significant, you know, it was that, that pivotal moment, so to say. Absolutely. I'm sure even that there's a residency, you probably saw that you can make art a career. I mean, at this point before that, did you think you could, were you on that path anyways? Well, that's the thing because of this kind of real guided in the right direction. I, was thinking, I never thought about it as a career. Okay. I thought about it, I thought about it as a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, my statement, as I say, proudly, proudly all the time to people is that I live as an artist and whatever that entails, uh, good, bad, and indifferent, that's how I live, you know? Yeah. And um, it's a beautiful thing when something you created can turn around and provide for you. And I tell, you know, all my friends and students or whoever, um, celebrate the small steps, celebrate the small victories and, and, and reward yourself accordingly to those victories. And when you sell a good painting, treat yourself to something nice. Even if it's just a, you know, going out for dinner to a restaurant, you always thought you couldn't afford. Yeah. <laughs> yes. and splurge that one night, you know, and, and reward your process because that's where the energy come from. The fact that, wow, you know, I did, I'm here because yeah. of something that I did, you know? And so it has a whole nother value. Wow. Good words. I'm going to take that, <laughs> take that for myself. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So after your time in, in France, it sounds like it was amazing. Did you come back with a new perspective on what you were, of what you were capable of doing? Um. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I can't. I definitely came back rejuvenated mm. um, because for a whole month, no one stared at me like that. You know that look. I can go anywhere. Maybe I was just oblivious to it. Maybe it was the euphoric of the <laughs> moment. You know, I was just so like whatever kind of a thing. But I didn't experience that, and you know that was a part that really kind of got me feeling like wow. So this day, you know, this is still kind of this thing, you know, um, when you step out of this equation, it looks very different, very fast. And um, so if anything, that was one of the things that, you know, was definitely immediate. Um, but I was ready to definitely work because I made all these prints and there was galleries waiting for me on this end to like, you know, divide the, you know, the load, so to say. And it was like, you, you know, now we have to charge you know, find collectors for these things. It was a, so it was a two-part process. Uh, so I definitely came back ready, hit the ground running, and um, and definitely was feeling that moment for sure. Oh, wow. Yes. So, yeah, tell us what you did when you came back. Like, where, what were you creating? Um, I pretty much continued what I was doing prior to leaving. Um, at that time, I was knee-deep in, in the pilgrimage series. Okay, perfect. Uh, and so... It was just a matter of meeting those demands at that time. I was, you know, I was in a really good space. I had two or three galleries representing me. I had shows all over the country. I was leaving the country. Um, I mean, when they say it was the best of times, it was definitely the best of times. Um, you know, and so it was. It was good. Yeah, absolutely. And around that time was actually the the housing crisis, the first kind well, of big. Well, that came a little later. Uh, well, yeah, 2009, yeah. 2008, 
I say later because for me, art is, they say art is recession, recession proof. Um, and I didn't feel the recession for a while. I'm not going to lie. Oh, wow. You know, not going with. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I didn't feel it for a while. Um, Good. And there was a lot going on um, behind the scenes. Um, and so, you know, but I was aware of it for sure, you know. Um, and uh, art is funny like that, you know. It's like, you know, it's like it operates on its own universe in some ways. And so if you happen to be plugged in at the right time, you know, it can it can mess you up because it it throws off reality so much yeah. that you may not be able to relate and that could create problems. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So, and also I'm curious when you say, a, and this is more for a question for me and everyone else listening, when you say a gallery was representing you, what does that mean? Okay. Well, the gallery represent you, they kind of committed to, um, giving you a, an exhibition, um, preferably a one person show, preferably once a year or definitely every two years. Mm-hmm. And in between that, all the works from the show, they continue to try to sell them, promote them, find new collectors and try to get you to the point where you're just focusing on creating the art. Okay. Instead of focusing on trying to find collectors and, and, and make deals and all that stuff. Perfect. So it's, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a, a it's sort of a business thing then. Like they're kind of it's taking a, care of it's the. A, it's a business situation. It's a it's a. Um, it, it, it's not all you know. It's not all gravy. It's, you know, and it can be difficult because you know artists ebbs and flows as well. And so if you were with a gallery that's very, you know, that have you in a strict contract, mm. and they're not producing enough for you to survive but yet you can't really step outside of that contract you can get trapped in a situation where you know you have to go serve coffee for you know a couple hours a day at starbucks to make ends meet yep and and so it really depends on the gallery and and the kind of volume the gallery is producing and and their connections and their collector base and all that stuff as well so wow he's also around the time this is so a lot's happening and i actually want to back up a little bit because you were also in some magazines at this point too some publications yeah so that was um, that's another feat so yeah talk about some of those you know that you were featured in so what were we going to talk about we were going to say um <laughs> is anywhere but here my name's maria my name's tom and we are two reluctant residents of greensboro north carolina who want to talk about it and want to talk about it with other reluctant residents of greensboro (laughs) and kind of explore our accidental love for the city yeah it'll be great i'm excited i'm very excited we're gonna have guests and then you and i are gonna talk for hours many many hours (laughs) so many hours we're looking forward to it yeah, some, some of the publications that you were in, 
Um, obviously, at this point, you have been in, our, in a few already, but I'm seeing New York Times in the 2000 and a few others. So how did it feel being in publications? Um, I think the most significant publication kind of a thing, um, I think in very early on, I think the New York Newsday had an article. And um, this is, again, I was really starting off. And um, they had my photo and picture of my work and da da da. And um, the reason that was significant is because this was the first time, you know, my family could actually see that, you know, oh wow, this, you know, you're actually doing something with this thing or whatever, whatever. Um, so that was the one, that was the one where you ran out and bought as many copies as you could. Kind of <laughs> yes. Because it just, I wouldn't say solidify. But it was very close to in terms of like letting it be known or that validation that I was looking for to really kind of like, you know, speak for me, so to say, because people, you know, it's a very humbling thing. And so it's not something that you go around, you know, tooting your horn, you know, it's not that kind of a thing. So when it's like publicly available like that, it just changed the whole conversation. Wow, I bet that was. And at this point, also, do you feel any pressure? To, were you sending money home? Well, that's later on. Okay. At this time, I'm still, by the, the early stages, I was still kind of like you know getting on, getting on, sort of. Right, right. Well, I'm happy you had that first you know time to really show your family like, oh, this is actually serious. <laughs> like he, this is not a joke. That's right, truly amazing. Right. And it's right. okay. So back to pilgrimage because I would definitely want to talk about that. And that was around the two step, two thousand eight, two thousand seven. Right, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, I think up until like 2015, I was still doing pilgrimage. Oh my gosh. So yeah, let's talk some, take some time to talk about that because that is a beautiful <laughs> set of pieces. So can you tell us, I guess, briefly kind of what that project is about and kind of your time creating it? Um, <clears throat> um, well, so this, was a, this is the part where the artist kind of like transition into the artist, so to say. Mm. And the time I started doing pilgrimage from scattered points, now I'm able to resource my learnings, my experiences, my life travels, my life lessons, and really starting to observe my surroundings, my social, political um, dynamics, um, and became, you know, really aware of what was going on and trying to really address these things in a different light. And one of the things that I wanted to address without kind of like being overt or obvious is the concept of, you know, race and identity. And how do I kind of tackle that without just the, you know, the typical, you know, um, protest scene or, you know, raise a black fist in the air. And how do I address these undercurrents, right? And so, Pilgrimage from Scattered Points, the idea, the aha moment, you know, came to me, you know, after months and months and months of thinking and reflecting and trying to figure out, well, is trying to come up with a universal way of approaching, you know, kind of a universal idea, but through one kind of a aspect of it. And one of the aspects of it that I thought was interesting was the aspect of coming back together. 
pilgrimage from scattered points. So they are, they are coming together from these scattered points. And so the title in itself kind of really set the stage and framed the work mm-hmm. in terms of, and, and, and also framed the, the, the broader narrative around it. The fact that these people were, you know, involuntarily separated from their family, their land, their homes, yes. and still survived and still trying to fabricate, you know, that fiber of their identity, that fiber of their lineage. And, and ultimately, it's a story of resilience, defiance, determination, inner will, inner self. And so when you see these groupings coming to these clusters, it is a moment of discovery mm. and, and revelation and, and in some ways, spirituality. And so to be fully honest with you, I'm really not done with that work. Um, I was more or less doing a bit of a pivot sort of thing. Um, but I feel that there's so much more to that work that and the visual language of that work um, that I feel that there's so much more in there that I can tap into. Um, and so I just needed to kind of step back a little bit for a while. And I think the last few years, I, I was able to do that partly because of pandemic, partly because of family dynamics, partly because I just wanted to kind of re-energize my process. And, um, and I feel like I've done that the last few years to the point now I might be, you know, just about ready to reapproach pilgrimage from Scatterpoint, but from a different kind of perspective. Wow. Um, and so I'm thinking about the maiden voyage approach. Um, but again, the root of it is still this kind of, you know, vigilance and defiance and self-determination and, um, you know, clear language is very important in communication, and clear language is very, even more important in art. And to be able to communicate your message clear and concisely through one piece is is a big triumph, and it's a big part of the motivation for me. Right, and I'm sure it's very, I'm sure it's very challenging to kind of, you know, get that point across with multiple images over multiple years. So. Um, right. I know it's a spender over, but it's still very impressive how you're able to kind of come back to this idea and kind of dive in and out. So, no, yeah. I mean, if you look at artists like Ed Clark, who is unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, um, who is he's someone who was in painting since the 60s. Yeah. And Ed Clark had developed what's called a push broom technique, where he would attach four or five, you know, push brooms together to create like a three or four or five foot brush. And then he would just, you know, lay down the paint on the edge of the canvas and then did one big sweep across. And mm. these lines that would be created from the brush, the bristles of the brush and how pushing the paint mixed it at the same time. So it would start off with one color. And by the time he got the other edge of canvas it was a whole nother color or it started with lines and then it bled together and he created this you know this technique and he pushed that broom for like 40 years mm. you know 
Wow. And so, because he was like, I need to push it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> one more time. One more time. You know, so there's a thing when you, as an artist, tap into, it becomes a drug addiction. It's, you know, it's the closest thing that you could defy that could kind of relate to what this thing feels like when it connects. Because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that that signature piece. And, um, and, and very few are lucky enough to find that. Very few. Absolutely. I mean, forty. Oh my God, that's 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 such a crazy feat that he did that for that long. <laughs> that just tells you how far this can really go if you want it to. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. It could be, it, it be straight to the silo. Oh my gosh! And you bring it. You bring up that point, and obviously, it's someone that inspires you. You know, I love talking to artists who were around before the age of technology. Because I'm wondering, how did you find inspiration? Because obviously, we have Instagram. We have ways of quickly assessing artists super quick. So were you, like, looking at books or reaching out to artists more in person? Like, how were you, you know, getting inspired and staying inspired at that, at that time period? No, you, you hit it. The question kind of answered the question. Um, because Instagram and, you know, all these other um, Tumblr and um, is it – there's so many – image um websites and that are you know people taking photos and yep so yeah there's a zillion zillion you know bites of information to, re to reference and to, re to the point where to me it's, it's inundating and overwhelming yeah <laughs> yes yeah because you get to the point where your own filtering process becomes so corrupt that you no longer have an original idea and not that you had one in the first place, mm. but True. it's to the point where it's to the point where you so you know almost desensitized that you become numb to it, and um, and I find that happening to me sometimes. I'm looking at images on Instagram to the point where I'm like, okay, I've seen enough for today, kind of a thing, because I'm not looking for you know that kind of guidance, or you know I'm not looking for you know, nuances and, and elements. I'm not looking for those things anymore. I already know exactly what I want to do. It's just a matter of doing it. Um, but definitely back then, library, bookstores, um, unfortunately, you had to buy a lot of books. Yep. And I used to have a lot of art books. And again, unfortunately, most of the art books that were being published were, you know, white artists. Yep. And so pop art is the only art in the only artist you would see is Jean-Michel Basquiat and, and, and most of these books, unless you went to the Studio Museum of Harlem and I think the Queens Museum or the Schomburg Center and, um, you know, a few bookstores here and there, maybe even strands, you might catch an old copy or something. Um, so most of the books you would find with people like Elizabeth Catlett, um, Romeo Bearden, Jacob Lawrence, and those were the kind of catchphrase of the day in terms of artists and art books, you know, Harlem Renaissance and this and that. So it wasn't a lot of material that was circulating at large. You had, to get that kind of material, you had to go to the museum in particular. And there you would find emerging contemporary artists of African descent, African-American, et cetera. So people like Gwyn Lagan, mm. um, 
uh, Mark Bradford, um, you know, just, I mean, just to name a few, you know, yeah. in those days, the only prominent African-American artists in those days was David Hammonds. I don't know if anyone knows David Hammonds. Probably one of the most expensive living black artists in the whole world. Really? Uh, wow. Yes, David Hammonds, yes. And um, so, but in those days, David Hammonds hadn't made that kind of a break yet. David Hammonds was still doing residencies and, and, and marching towards his, his goal, so to say. Um, and so it was, you had to be very self, self-resourced and really, really go after things and excavate, <laughs> literally, to get information and to find that inspiration. Um, and more just to learn that someone else is doing it. You know, like yes. like Frank Bowler. Frank Bowler is a good example. He lived half of the year in London, half of the year in New York. He had a studio in Dumbo. Um, and he's, you know, unfortunately, these people are now in the late 80s, 90s, and a lot of them have passed. And luckily for a lot of them, before they passed, they did see some success. They did get some acknowledgement. But unfortunately, a lot of that acknowledgement came too late, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, because there was an article I think last year in the New York Times, you know, making a big splash about Ed Clark, um, and, um, what's the name, Howard Dina Pendel, Frank Bolin, um, and then Sam Gilliam, and there's a few more. Sam Gilliam is in Washington D.C. And so, but everyone, Howard Dina Pendel in particular, she's like, where was this success when I was trying to raise my kids? <laughs> right. So. You know, I can't really do nothing with it. And then it was this success from demand. And art making is very physical. People don't know that. But you can't stand 10, 12 hours a day maneuvering canvas and lifting stuff. Da, 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 da. You know, in your 80s and your 90s. You know, I could barely do it now. I'm in my 50s. And so, and then you have to travel to these galleries. They put you on a plane and you got to go overnight. You got to do this. You got to lecture. You got to. It's like, I'm not a rock, you know, you gotta be a rock star. You gotta be an athlete to do this stuff, asking these people to do. And so, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's very interesting. And um, nowadays, the, the artist that's coming up, you know, I envy them because, you know, they don't know the fruits that's in front of them and they don't fully need to know. Uh, but still, it's like, wow, you know, if I had that kind of leg up, oh, forget about it. <laughs> wow that's phenomenal that, i mean you're absolutely correct um the artists now are even me i'm i'm 31 years old obviously i've been in the game for about 12 years i'm a photographer and um you're right the artists coming up now that i'm seeing that are going to the art school i went to um totally different world <laughs> completely different that's really insane um so let's go let's just jump to kind of more you know current time so obviously you had a ton of group exhibitions since then your work has kind of taken more of a i guess political social inspiration to it i guess right because pilgrimage is kind of that right right so i guess tell us kind of how you kind of saw yourself transforming into these like more current years um how was your work kind of shifting and what was the process of you making at work i mean good question um you know, I guess we could say BC and 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 before COVID. Yes. <laughs> and, 
And AC after COVID. <laughs> you know, it was it was interesting because um, 2019 to now, there's definitely been a shift in the work. And a lot of it was due to that. Um, learning to work in a vacuum and through televised information, um, you were glued to the news and, and, and your streaming sources because... You know, that was the only connection to the outside world that was available without the fear and the xenophobia and, and anxiety. And so you could kind of observe everything kind of like, a, you know, I guess 8 by 10, 12 by 16, whatever format you're working with. Um, so it gave you a whole new view or window box, so to say, for me at least, you know, because you know, as an artist, unfortunately, you end up looking through the world through a specific set of parameters, no matter how hard you try to break away from those. And I'm always looking at everything in an image format and image quality and image value, and, and, and then the, looking for the takeaway artistically. And sometimes there's nothing there, and sometimes it's a rich source of inspiration and information, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the work definitely started shifting at that point um mechanically um mentally mm. uh, and and also gallery wise as well um you know the pandemic was very good for a lot of artists mm. in terms of sales as well and auction houses were shifting over to internet platforms and viewing rooms and people were selling a ton of work and still are yep and so I mean, you you know it's going to end, but I'm not looking forward to that. But, <laughs> all, you know, all these things were, you know, significant in terms of the shift that's happening in terms of the work, the, the subject of the work, and the process of the work. And um, it's an interesting time to, to, to experience in real time and day-to-day format. It's definitely... Uh, it's one of those things that 50 years from now, people go, like, yeah, remember when that pandemic and yeah, it was crazy. You know, it's going to be like, you know, to be able to see this thing in hindsight is going to be interesting. But to see it in day, in real time is also interesting as well. You know, learning to cope and survive is, is, and how that filters into your mechanisms, mm. you know. So um, sometimes it's more immediate and obvious, sometimes it's very similar and covid cryptic and um and even you're not even aware of the fact that you're talking about this thing without knowing that you're talking about this thing until five years removed you look back at the work and say oh wow that really i was oh wow i had no idea you know um yeah absolutely yeah it's interesting how these things impact your subconscious and motivate your creativity and you have no idea Absolutely. You know, at first, when it first started, I was very nervous because I was at this point, I interviewed a bunch of artists, I knew a bunch of artists, and I was hoping that this wouldn't stop a lot of people from creating. But you're right. I feel like a lot of artists created more, you know, Um, and more specifically with you, it looks like Mumbo Jumbo was during that year. Right. So, yeah, tell us about that. Again, this is a set of beautiful works. I spent so much time looking at the details and the Nike swoosh on the shoe and just, just, just all of it. So, so can you tell us briefly like about that work and how it was creating that? 
Well, the statement from Mumbo Jumbo, um, I don't even know a bit of it by heart, actually. Um, it's rooted in my experience as a black man, raised in the urban context of the United States of America. I examined the tension between self-actualization and social structures. Mm. Conceptual, abstract, figurative, and layered. I examined the, the, the challenges that impedes our ability to, to move forward and, and to, you know, to pursue our own happiness, individual happiness and so forth. So I'm kind of, you know, breaking off at the end there. I don't remember the whole thing. So it's definitely about, you know, that whole self-discovery and the challenges that are autonomously placed, whereas now you no longer need a iconic, you know, burning cross on your lawn. Mm an overt sign of racial tension to be experiencing racism yep. and, and, and how it's so woven into this fabric of the system that it no longer need a hand to pull a trigger. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of hands still pulling triggers, on yes. but there's so many other triggers that don't get noticed. And so there's so many systematic um, issues that, are in place that are impacting your livelihood in ways that you have no ideas being impacted. And so this work was trying to use the symbolism of the hose and the water pressure to kind of like serve as the central antagonist of this work in terms of how all you're trying to do is pursue your own individual self. And yet there's you know, a whole slew of just systematic, bureaucratic um, obstacles, uh, you know, the burden of, of um, you know, black exceptionalism, the fact that you have to be the best of the best of the best to be anything, mm. you know, and, um, you know, I think the 2016 election was a great example of that because Barack Obama had to be the best of the best of the best, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. And then his predecessor was the worst of the worst of the worst. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Yes. Then, but here it is being, you know, think of it as microfilm. They took a picture. They're developing in front of you in real time. And this is a portrait of everything that's wrong with the system. The, for this, you know, first black president to to materialize, you talking about, you know, cum laude, you know, Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, this man had to do like things that, you know, Gandhi couldn't do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> he had to be a superhero, pretty much. To and then here's someone who allegedly has a college education, allegedly pays taxes, allegedly is faithful to his wife, allegedly respects women, allegedly respects others. Uh, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Yes, it oh. does. And then he pretty much was ushered right on through by electoral college, despite the horror of millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans and people all over the world. And so... <clears throat> the work is definitely packed with these loaded symbolism of emojis to kind of reframe the uh, old narrative 
in modern context. And so you see emojis, you see some images where there's a hand um, covering a face. We talk mm-hmm. about hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. And these kind of proverbs in the work. Um, and so for me, it was interesting because it was the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd. Yes. And so, so I was reacting to my environment, you know, and I usually don't do that. I usually process stuff differently. But this time it was just like, it was, it was overwhelming. The floodgates had opened and, you know, it's like, well, how do I talk about this thing? How do I get in this conversation? And so this was the way that I was able to kind of pivot towards it and get into it. And, and it's still ongoing. Okay, this is another ongoing project. Okay, I didn't know if it was had an end date or not, but obviously those issues are never going to end. Well, it feels like they're never going to end. So <laughs> you can probably do this for, for forever. But yeah, I mean, beautiful pieces. I, I spent like a lot of time just going through it. So is there any particular reason why you use the Nike swoosh? Well, I wanted to kind of like, you know, again, as a Haitian American, one of the struggles had been always how do you maintain social and cultural ties to more than one place at the same time? Yeah. How do I how do I celebrate my Haitian nationality and Haitianhood and immerse and assimilate into this American context? So visually, these was this was there for that visual reference in terms of you know this bridge between these cultural dynamics and how regardless of nationality you're subject to the same kind of like perceptions that any other black person would be and so you can wave your haitian flag as a lot as you want no one sees that yep they see they see black first and so yep the nike was something that no matter what it is you just you pay a Nike, so to say. Um, but also, it just talked about the individual as this kind of like resist residual, um, re, you know, resilient um, kind of like triumphant stride, sort of say. Um, really looking and focusing on those victories, opposed to those defeats, and so mm. the. This athletic, you know, motivated, determined individual is going to defy these obstacles, you know, defy these prejudices, and he's going to, you know, celebrate with that finger, number one, waving that number one finger in the air. Um, and I use that according to the fist in some cases. Some cases I do use the fist, um, you know, because historically the pump fist is a very outward uh, demonstration of, you know, black consciousness and, and, and anti-white establishment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a service purpose. But for the work, I didn't think that was the thing that for every instances, I think that, you know, saying that I'm not one is just a powerful you know coming in first place is in some ways just as powerful and so but at the same time coming in first place is also very burdening yes because you know first place means elite and to be elite you have to do things that you know other people are not willing to do and so you you know you have people with god-given talent 
And God-given talent can make you good, right? But to be elite, you got to be willing to do some things. And so this, some of my characters are definitely waving this kind of elite symbol um, because of what they had to go into, had they, what they've gone through and undergo in order to be where they are. Mm, wow. I love that. I love that all that is kind of symbolizing that work. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you, you get to a certain age. It's like, you know, you look, you, it's just the world just looks different. You know, it's, it's in slow motion now, you know. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, it's wild because obviously I'm not saying you're this old, but even talking to my grandparents, <laughs> sort of like that, this, because they yeah. speak kind of like that. They're like, this world is just completely just so different. <laughs> We've seen it through so many different stages, and it's just they have different perspectives on this whole thing going on. So um, it all makes a lot of sense talking to someone that's kind of been in the game for a long time. But um, so this is going to Shades of Blackness. I know you did that for Since We're Here, Mm -hmm. um, a beautiful piece. And for everyone listening, I could talk to Franks for probably another five hours, but. Uh, you've, you've done a lot of work, but I want to make sure we keep it. Um, I want to respect your time. So, um, talk about Since We're Here, which is a show that Evna has on right now. Um, amazing show. She sent me pictures and some videos of it. Talk about that piece for, for that show and uh, what went into that. Um, that piece, Shades of Blackness, is, uh, you know, it, you know, it kind of like took some getting to mm. in terms of you know i'm doing this work mumbo jumbo and you know i started looking at it from different perspectives and when i zoomed into one of the paintings you know shade of blackness was sitting right there in the corner of a painting just waiting to be discovered so to say and i was like wow that looks really good i wonder what it would look like if that was the whole painting and so I took my phone and took a picture of that corner of the painting. And then I got another canvas out. And it was like a floodgate open, you mm. know, because, you know, when you are creating images and it's a domino kind of effect, that was that first domino. And then, and so um, it just struck me so vividly and so immediately that. It had to be a painting on its own. I had to flush it out and, and recreate it. And um, and we're talking about journey into self-discovery. We're talking about shades of blackness. We're talking about layers of identity. We're talking about you are not who you are just because of who you are. Mm. And, and that there are so many people that came before you that made contributions that equates to who you are allowed to be. And so... Shades of Blackness really is digging into those contributions and digging into those other layers and digging into even the idea of Blackness. And, you know, you have every hue of color coming out of Blackness. Yes. Um, And so, you you know, so it's just so layered and and so many um, perspectives in terms of self-discovery. And self-discovery is not necessarily singular to me, but self-discovery in terms of general, how in the last few years, we are learning a lot as a, as a collective. So many things that were kind of like hidden and erased and ignored and 
and and just overlooked in terms of you know African American experience, um, redlining, um, you mm-hmm. know Tulsa, Oklahoma. There was a Tulsa in every major city. Yeah, absolutely, and so, absolutely, and, and 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 so forth and so on and so forth and so on. And uh, so Shades of Blackness really addressed the fact that you know it also addressed a certain level of autonomy as well because too often that you're not even allowed to be the kind of black person you want to be mm-hmm. and that there is no room or space for you know what you call self-evolve or or self-define or self-motivate whatever it is this is your category this is where you say this yes. is where you belong this is where you operate no you just who you are because of who you are that's it and and i should have to subscribe to a precondition subscribe to a, a, a external definition you know who's to say that the only acceptable way to be black is to go out and smash a can over your head yep it's like it's ridiculous and so shades of blackness really adjust the fact that you can be intellectual, you can be creative, you could go to school, you could actually read a book. You, reading is okay, you know. To be smart is okay. Yes. And all these things, you know. Kids used to make fun of other kids because, you know, they're a nerd. It's like, yeah, and you know, <laughs> yes. that being, why is that being held against someone? You know, I have kids and they're in school right now. Well, my daughter is very smart. And when she was valedictorian, you know, a little girl in her class that was her friend the whole year stopped being her friend. Wow. Because you think you're smart, she said to her. She's like, I didn't think anything. I was just trying to make a speech and make my parents proud. That's it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So so Shades of Blackness really addressed all these, you know, noids, you know, that's in the air and you know and you you have to just be so strong and and even that is a burden you know you just want to breathe air and eat some food and, and, and think and write and explore whatever it is you want to do you want to be free to do it you know you want to be free to go free to move and so um so it's a lot it's a lot it is, and it's crazy. You you explaining this. Obviously, I'm seeing a lot of myself of this because obviously, you know, I hate that we kind of put our own selves, we kind of stereotype our own selves. Growing up, I dealt with a lot of that. You know, I'm a person that loved to read. I read Harry Potter books. I was listening to certain kind of music. I talked a certain way, and I was definitely ridiculed a lot just throughout there, which caused some definitely some self some self hatred. And seeing yeah. this piece, like, it really resonates. Seriously. And then hearing you talk about it, it makes more sense. And even you talking about you going to, you know, Long Island, uh, the Brooklyn campus during a crack, you know, epidemic mm-hmm. and you, you know, reading books, you going to school, which just kind of represents you, obviously. So yeah. I, this now that I know the story behind this it is even more beautiful. So this is this is wonderful work. No, it was it was uh, it was, a, you know, it was definitely a challenge, but it was definitely a journey. And um and the one that was very enriching and i was lucky to be able to tap into the the enriching process of that that came along with it and really used it and and to my fullest creatively as as as, you know as well as socially and personally and all that stuff 
Absolutely. Oh man, that's that's, that's so beautiful. That's I'm gonna remember this for the rest of my life. <laughs> I gotta put that. Uh, uh, are you still on that piece? Um. Well, I'm I'm still on the same idea, but not that piece. Like again, the piece behind me um, is kind of like similar. I don't know if oh I wow! Could, if you can see. Yeah, I can. I'm taking a picture of it. Wow, very similar. Oh wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. So that one is is yeah, is a pivot as well, but yet keeping that same energy in the mainframe. Um, and there's a few more in the works for sure. Definitely a few more. Absolutely, I'm sure the future is you know, and you've been creating a lot more of this type of work. So. Um, so lastly, how was the, how was the showing? Did you go to the, the opening? No, I went to the show. Opening was fantastic. People came, you know, a little, a little COVID phobia, but other than that, um, it was a great time and, um, a lot of fun was had. Uh, it, from the videos and the photos that I was sent, that even sent me, it looked like it was a super good time. You know, I'm glad I can do these via zoom and talk to you guys mm -hmm. like that, but I wish I could have have been there but you know I'm, I'm very happy to still be kind of involved <laughs> yeah well you know the information is a big part of it and so having that there are people who came to the show have don't know five percent of what all of this was even about so they visually they were you know they were able to capture that but you have to be able to put the information to the images as well and so um you know sometimes a crowded show doesn't give you the chance to, or the opportunity to really look at the work and definitely doesn't give you a chance to read and understand, you know, not to say it's always necessary, but it's a good option if you wish to exercise it. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'm still, I'm still feeling uh, some FOMO though. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, my, my friend, I want to hold you any longer. I know you have some work to do, but I am, very, very honored that you were on this show with me. I'll definitely never forget this. And hopefully in New York, I can come meet you sometime. I'd love to see your studio and your space and, and get to shake your hand. No problem. No problem. Uh, That's, we just hope that the right person can hear this and get, get something out of it. That's what I hope for. Oh, I definitely think that some people will for sure. I know I did. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens from there. But um, I was told, I told people if you have questions for you, they can send you an email or a message. Um, I can't talk about everything you've done because we'd be here for another six hours. <laughs> but I look forward to see what you're going to, uh, what you're going to create in the, in the years to come. So thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Of course. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. Have a good one. The Free Pizza Podcast. We are on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud. Just go on the Google App Store. Go on everywhere. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, MySpace, Live Journal, Twitter. We tweet. We'll do smokes, niggles, whatever y'all need. Thank y'all so much. Have a good night.